0: Ahoy, it's a boy. Today is September 3rd, the cusp of Labor Day. And while the weekend has been pretty lame, if I'm being honest, uh, I really haven't done much of anything. Um, I'm kind of happy that we get mm, three days off. So, uh, you know, I I was sort of, uh, I'm sort of sitting here thinking, this morning I had a lot on my mind. And uh, living alone, I have plenty of time to just sort of talk to myself, which is something that I do frequently. And I was doing a lot of it this morning, and I had this thought that crossed my mind. is like, hey, should you should just sit down, fire up the microphone, and start recording some of this stuff. And uh, I didn't. Um, I don't know what I did, but now that I'm sitting here, I was literally thinking, hey, see if you can recall some of that stuff you were talking about. And I have no idea what I was talking about. So uh, we'll kind of see where things take us. Um, we just finished uh, our first full week of classes at school, and... Um, I'm very quickly approaching my last day of work, and I gotta be honest, I I don't know, this is probably a good thing, but today it feels a little uncomfortable, which is, I don't know if it's a confidence crisis or just being on the cusp of this big change where my availability is about to open up, and I'm just really thinking about how I want to spend my time, which is really just a sort of microcosm of a a much larger issue, which is like, how do I want to spend the rest of my life? Uh, my time with a capital T, how do I want to spend my time on this planet? Um, and, you know, I think when I decided I was going to put in my time at work, I was kind of faced with, you know, and it's it's nothing personal. It's just, it just is the case that I, I've been, in, I was at my job for a long time. I kind of did all the personal and professional growth and development I was going to get there. And so for a long time, it was just a job of convenience. Although the work was very important to me, and I enjoyed a lot of the people that I worked with, um, you know, it was just like being in a relationship for too long. It's no one's fault. It just, you know, what do they say? The only constant is change. And, uh, you know, it was a changing of the seasons. And, uh, um, you know, I I probably said it in, in previous episodes, but You know, although I could have stayed in that job, sometimes I think it's a bit of an act of courage, whether it is a relationship or a job. Just kind of, even though you're not sure what the next thing is going to be, you kind of have to make room in your life for that thing to show up. And if you just kind of keep doing what you're doing, you're, you know, you're just never going to have the opportunity to see what that thing is. So you kind of take the plunge and, you know, the in-between period can be a little unsettling. But sure enough, um, I don't know, you land somewhere and, um, I, I think I'm kind of seeing where, where else that applies in my life. I mean, since coming back from Taiwan, I had sort of decided while I was there and it's kind of been in my mind that I was going to apply for a Fulbright scholarship. And while that is great, I would, and I'm not necessarily against that. I have to be honest and say that the, the graduate program I'm thinking of applying to, although it's at a great school, it's like the number school, uh, sorry, it's like the number two university in Taiwan. And I would be studying Chinese. I kind of really don't like the location. You know, it's all the way on, um, if I can think of a compass, it's on the west side of the island. It's really far from Taipei, which is where I spent most of my time this summer. And, you know, although it ticks a lot of boxes, like, hey, Fulbright, very prestigious. You know, uh, this college, very, very prestigious. It would be very impressive on a resume. I'm also thinking, Yeah, but do you really want to spend two years there? You know? Um, You know, especially if you're not entirely sure where it's going to lead you. I mean, if I was 100% sure what I wanted at the end of that program and I was confident that that was going to be the vehicle that got me there, I mean, that's one thing. But if it's just going to be a two-year investment for a diploma or, you know, I don't know, bragging rights or something like that I mean of course my Chinese would improve that would be great but that can really happen anywhere and if that's really the goal right if the goal is just to be in Taiwan and have language improvement you know there's other ways to do that and so I guess what I'm saying is I've had this sort of pressure hanging over me which is you know but before I apply to anywhere else the deadline for the Fulbright scholarship is coming up Quickly, And not only does that mean that I have to do quite a bit of work in terms of like writing a mission statement and you know, some essays and that sort of stuff. I also have to conscript the help of like three different people to like write me a letter of recommendation. And it's, you know, the challenge there is it's not just a letter of recommendation. It's a letter of recommendation that speaks very specifically to the aims of uh, what you hope to accomplish with the Fulbright scholarship. So you know, I've written letters of recommendation for people, and um, you know, you never want to condemn someone by faint praise. But there's also a way in which you, you know they kind of write themselves sometimes. Um, or I've even done this, where I've actually asked other people to write them. You know, the person who's seeking a letter of recommendation from me, I'll just be like, hey, why don't you write it? And then I'll take it and morph it into my words. But you know, at the end of the day, they kind of know what points I need to hit to get into the institution that they're. Uh, wanting to get into so I sort of trust their judgment about that and I don't know maybe that sounds weird I don't have too many qualms about it um, but the point is is that this Fulbright scholarship would require you know a significant investment asking for a significant investment on the part of other people and if I'm not entirely sure but something I even want to do I just feel a little guilty about asking for their time I mean moreover I have to find someone to evaluate my language skills and uh, you know although I have people in mind for all of these tasks it just was and is starting to feel like, you know, I don't think this Fulbright scholarship is going anywhere, and maybe now is not the time to, to sort of apply for that. Um, maybe the smart move is to, oh, and maybe I haven't said this, but I did apply to two different language schools um, to be in Taipei again in the spring once I graduate, and I got accepted to both. They're both... Um, three month placements one starts at the end of february one starts at the beginning of march and i'm still kind of weighing my options there's no rush to make a decision um but uh yeah uh yeah so i'll definitely be uh back in taiwan in the spring and so maybe i'm thinking we'll just go for another three months you know see if um lightning can strike twice i mean if i go back for three months and i decide i really do like it um you know, it might be too late to apply for graduate school in the fall, but maybe, I don't know, maybe spring is an option, or maybe you do just wait a year. But the point is just kind of knowing for sure that you want to go, you know? I don't know if I mentioned this, but I do have a friend who's uh, who I met while I was in Taiwan who's actually from Vietnam. They were not... Um, uh, a member of the program that I participated in. Actually, they were one of the people. I, you know, I, I probably mentioned that I went a, a, on a crap ton of dates while I was in Taiwan. This was one of the people that I went on a date with. And um, Although I don't think that there's any... There's probably not the prospect of a romantic relationship. I keep in touch with them, and we're very friendly. And uh, I still enjoy the kind of cultural and uh, language exchange. But this person is actually from Vietnam. They're also studying Mandarin. And, um, you know, they had visited Taiwan, loved it, wanted to move there, found a job. They've been there for quite a, I think a couple of years now. And honestly, they're really not happy there. And so, you know, I think that could be the job that they're in, but yeah, I don't know. I guess I'm just feeling like, yeah, something about just sort of, you know, getting other people involved in investing this time in this application process. Um, that I wasn't even sure about myself, just, you know, didn't really feel like the right thing to do. Although I have to say I had a bit of a, I don't know what you call it. It was kind of an unexpected, uh, actually it turned out to be kind of an unexpected break. But um, on Friday morning, I, which is a very easy day for me class-wise, I just have one class. Um, I was sort of leaving for school and as I walked out to my bike, I saw that my rear tire was flat. And I was like, God damn it. Because uh, although I give myself enough time to kind of get things done, there's not a lot of room for error. So, you know, there's just no way in hell I was going to be able to change the tire in time. And I tried getting a ride from Lyft, you know, the car share app. And I've never had this happen before. But it basically told me like, yeah, no one's available to take you. Try try again later. And I was like, Jesus fucking Christ. I've never encountered this on any rideshare app ever, especially where I live in the Bay Area. You know, it's like a uh, car share central over here. And so, yeah, I just had to email the teacher and was like, Hey, I'm really sorry, but I got a flat tire and, you know, lift is telling me they can't give me a ride. If I, if I'm not able to leave here in like the next 10 minutes, you know, it's really not going to be worth me. I, I worded it a little more diplomatically, but <laughs> it's basically not going to be worth me like making the trek to school, right? If I arrive for the last 15 minutes of lecture, I mean, you know, maybe I'll just save myself the trip. So I didn't end up going. And, um... Yeah, why did I mention that? Yeah, I don't know. Maybe it's just a... Uh... Yeah, maybe in a weird way it sort of si- it was sitting with me because I was feeling like because I'm about to depart from work and because I will just be fo- focusing on my studies, um, I-, I guess, I f- especially in courses related to my major, this was one of them. This was my Buddhism in China class. Um, although I'm not too enthused on the topic, uh, it's relevant to my major, and uh, I just kind of want to hit those things out of a park. So I guess it felt like kind of a... I don't know. I was gonna say embarrassing. That's probably too heavy handed, but it yeah, it kind of felt like an embarrassing way to start the semester, and um, and uh, yeah. But what I ended up doing is uh, in the past, in the last iteration of this sort of personal journal, I probably spent a lot of time talking about synthesis, and uh, I was actually doing a fair amount of that before I left for Taiwan, and I was really. You know, since returning to school, I really haven't picked up my guitars. You know, I look to my right here, I have two guitars here that are just kind of sitting dormant. And um, And uh, you know, people ask me, and when they do you know people who've known me for a long time know, who know that music was a big part of my life for a long time, if I haven't seen them for a while and they they ask me like, "Hey, are you still doing music?" And I say, no, they often have a kind of almost a sad response. Um, not that they have a vested interest in what I'm doing, but I think because it was such a big part of who I was, they almost feel like they're sad for me in a way, you know, like maybe they're one, they're probably just anticipating that I might feel sad about it or that I might feel a certain type of way. But for me, it's nothing like that. You know, I, I just, you know, there was a period of my life where all I did was think about songs and songs I was writing and, you know, I feel like I'm actually, paraphrasing something that i heard bob dylan say in like the documentary no direction home or something like that which is great you should watch it if you haven't seen it actually don't look back for me is the best bob dylan documentary but no direction home is also very good um but like there was really a time in my life you know when i was sort of working at bars and restaurants where you know i wasn't too social i was kind of going to work um and i was just kind of coming home and writing music all the time and I was just kind of it was like I would I would be going to work and as I was walking there I would just be thinking about some lyrics I was working on or some couplet that I was trying to figure out for a song I was working on and I would also record every step of the songwriting process for me. So if I added a you know for some people they can sit down and crank out a song for me a song would take you know a couple of weeks and many many hours. And sometimes out of a single, mostly out of a single songwriting session, I would really only get like two, like a couplet of a verse, you know, I would get half a verse out of a couple hours of work. Um, But every time I made progress or kind of moved the ball down the field, I would record what I had up until that point. And so by the time I finished writing a song, I would have like 12 different, you know, partial recordings of the song that was kind of coming together. But as I was sort of marinating in a song, I would like just listen to what I had so far, and I would just kind of go over the melody over and over and over again, and it was this thing I was just kind of possessed by, you know, and of course I had to turn to things throughout the day, whether I was working or not, but anytime I had a, some downtime or a moment to just kind of get lost in my thoughts, I would be thinking about these songs, you know, and it wasn't just writing the songs or completing the songs or whatever, it was also the lens that I kind of experienced the world through, you know, anytime I had an experience that kind of stood out to me, or felt formative, or or, or you know, it was just like I was ringing my whole life like a, like a bar rag, just trying to get content for songs out of it, and um, you know, that was like my creative mechanism is the word I'm thinking of, and you know, towards the end of t- towards the end of my time like doing music, I, I really started to feel that kind of slowing down a little bit, and. um you know, now it's like the minute I decided that I was going back to school, I have, I mean, I've picked up my guitar a little bit and sometimes I pluck around or I'll record something that sounds like it might be a song idea, but I don't have any of that, and I don't have any of those thoughts. You know, I'm sure I could sit down and crank out a song by brute force, but I don't have any songs in me. You know what I mean? I mean I used to just use my dict my dictaphone. It's <laughs> a bad place to stir on a word. I used my dictaphone to record song ideas uh, as they came to me. And I just had this repository of just hundreds of song ideas and anytime I finished one song, if I didn't know what the next one would be, I would just randomly go through that dictaphone and just see what s- stood out to me and just start working on it. You know, in the sense was You know, the thing I had to kind of reconcile myself to because my process was so slow is that there was just never going to be enough time to write all the songs. But if I was diligent, you know, there would always be something that I could work on. Um, And that current is just non-existent anymore. And um, that now, of course, as I say that, that sounds sad, right? Because in a way, I'm kind of waxing poetic or romanticizing this one chapter of my life. But I think the point I'm really trying to make which now that I'm thinking about it is tangential to something else, but you know, I'm in a different chapter in my life and the, like, I'm totally okay with that. That's just the way it is. Um, you know, my sort of mind and my experience is sort of filled up with other things. And of course there's this always unspoken, you know, I do have this creative project, this idea that I've been marinating on for a long time that is not being attended to. And, and in a way I'm actually like totally preoccupied with that. I mean, even my, Academic interests and my academic studies are really just, you know, um, you you know, are, are sort of a smokescreen for for this creative project that I've sort of been sitting on for a long time. But why am I talking about that? Uh, why am I talking about this? Um, I was talking about school. I was talking about being in a different chapter of my life. And I was going to talk about my disconnection from music as related to something else. It was actually a way to back into another thought, which I have no idea. Oh, I was talking about music. I was talking about what I was doing before the summer. And yes, so while songwriting is not a thing that I really do anymore, um, one thing I was doing—I've sort of done intermittently since returning to school—is making a little bit of music, or at least scratching that itch in different ways, and. One of those has been synthesizers and just kind of learning about uh, synthesizers and, and how they operate. And there's this great piece of software that I highly recommend called Centorial, which will teach you about synthesis if that's something that you're interested in. You can certainly just like get a software synthesizer or a hardware synthesizer and start mucking around. And on YouTube, there are tons of tutorials and all that sort of stuff. But if you're like me, I'm kind of an academic person, like I really like a a syllabus or a structure you know I like to feel like I'm sort of working through something I like to have a guide uh, in a way just to make sure I'm kind of doing the quote right thing you know I mean no matter whether it's classical music or Russian literature or anything if I get into something I create like a syllabus for myself you know when I got into Russian literature and I just decided in a moment hey you're just going to read a shit ton of Russian literature it's like I create a syllabus, you know, who are the major authors, what, uh, you know, what, what are their uh, dates, so that I can read them kind of chronologically, and also not just their lives, but what are their major works, and then in what order were those written, and I just kind of go through the list, you know, so like when it, you know, when, when, I mean, I guess thinking of Russian literature... It was like reading Pushkin. And then after that, it was like Gogol. And then like after that, my, uh, Lermontov. Or, and then after that, it was like Dostoyevsky or something like that. I, I don't know the order uh, you know, perfectly. Turgenev's in there somewhere. Um, but uh, that's just kind of the way I work. And so I kind of muck around with something. But when I'm all in, I'm all in. You know? And, uh, yeah, I guess I was trying to say with synthesis... You know, I started mucking around. And I thought, oh, this could be interesting, but I wanted to learn. So I used this software program called centorial which teaches you about all the different parts of a synthesizer, and also is really kind of based on your training. So I highly recommend that. I re- I've done that. I've actually worked through that whole system a couple times because a lot of things in my life are this way. I don't know if I smoked too much weed when I was younger, but and maybe it's also part of just getting old. But I feel like I've been living with this for a while. But it's actually really hard for me to retain information. You know, some of it just could be like a psychological barrier, which is—I mean, I think there's a recent installment in this personal journal called *Memento*, where I talk about this. But you know, part of my psycho-spiritual slash existential psychological makeup that I'm living with here is—it's very hard for me to keep traction with things. And I think a lot of it's sort of rooted in self-esteem and all that sort of stuff. But it's—it's sort of hard for me to allow things to sort of build on each other, right, so part of that is experiences, right, like I, you know, most recently, I go to Taiwan, I work on my language for about two months, and while things improve, the moment I get back, it's like that experience never happened, you know, and even today, I'm sitting in this space where I'm feeling like, oh, my language is deteriorating, and, um, you know, so to my credit, I'm trying to do things to kind of keep up with that, like, I'm going to be linking up with a language partner through the university so I can have someone I can meet with regularly and practice my Chinese with. Also, this program that I did uh, was a government scholarship to go to Taiwan. It's like, I must have done something right in the past life because I feel blessed. But they just emailed us and were like, hey, we'll give you like 20 hours of free continued language tutoring if that's something that you want. And I was like, yes, please get that language study on free free. But it was like, you know, so I'm trying to do what I can to keep up with things. But the point I'm trying to make is, you know, you do something like Centurial, where you're learning synthesis. And even though I've worked through all that, and you're going to, you know, if you complete the whole thing, you're going to put many hours into it. And yet, it's like, if I get some time away from it, it's like I tell myself I got to do the whole program all over again. You know, it's, it's fucking nuts. I don't know why I am that way. And when I think about it in other areas of my life, I'm also like, well, before going to school, I was absolutely steeped in Chinese philosophy, meaning I've read you know, every major English translation of the Analects, every major English translation of um, Mencius, every major English translation of uh, the Tao Te Ching and all these sorts of things, or Jing and all these other sorts of Chinese philosophical texts and classics and all that sort of stuff. And yet, I feel like an idiot. You know, if I'm put on the spot and asked to like articulate the meaning of this or that, I, f- I kind of feel like I don't really know what I'm talking about, you know. And where am I going with this? I don't know. Uh, maybe I was just saying before I went to Taiwan, I've been looking for other ways to kind of scratch a musical itch, and one of those has been making music with my computer and getting into Ableton, and you know, you know, not getting into a lot of software instruments and trying to make electronic dance music or something like that, but. You know, I've had Ableton, which is a recording software for a long time, and I've had it since I was, you know, I don't know, 16, 17, and I first got it thinking I was going to be Radiohead or something like that, like I was going to make this kind of Bjork or Radiohead type music, and of course the only music I ever made was just like a dude with a guitar, but that's been my recording software, I don't know why, and even this uh, little personal journal is sort of getting recorded into Ableton right now. But uh, yeah, I've been spending time learning those instruments, learning how to make um, computer music, and um, yeah, so again, this is just a long-winded way of saying, so Friday I didn't go to class, so what did I do? Well, I've returned to Synthesis in a way, and uh, there's a software synth company called Arturia, and they have, uh, I I mean, I guess they're trying to make it like their kind of flagship synth right now. It's called Pigments. And um, I found um, an online course or a teacher who creates these sort of educational, uh, online educational things. And he is sort of walking people through this software synth pigments. And um, yeah, I really enjoyed it. Um, again, I, I really don't see this kind of stuff building to anything. Um, but I think because I have more time, I'm kind of just you know, looking for excuses to do things that I'm, I'm just going to enjoy. They don't necessarily have to be, you know, on the one hand, I see myself piling things on like, yes, find a language partner. Yes, get this free language study from the government. Um, what else am I picking up? I feel like there was something else I was sort of thinking about recently. But as I'm getting this time, it's like, I know I'm feeling insecure about that. You know, I actually did meet with someone, um, um, there's a coworker of mine who got some new responsibilities and I had not yet told people that I was leaving. So there was kind of a sense in which I was kind of orienting them to their new position while also knowing that I was eventually leaving. And so very soon after they sort of settled into their job, this announcement comes out that I'm leaving my work. And, you know, we just sort of commented on that. Like, yeah, isn't it kind of strange that we had this recent meeting and you were kind of helping me and you've known that you were leaving and that didn't come up. And, um, and I was just kind of telling them because they were asking about it. I was like, I feel a bit insecure because I've been in this job for so long that now that I'm not going to do it, I, I am kind of losing a big part of my identity. You know, like when people meet me, it's pretty cool to say that, you know, I have this job and this is what I do. And, you know, that was something that a big part of my identity, you know, or even when I, if I'm honest, some of my like confidence came from. It felt like a cool thing to tell people, um, and now that that's kind of disappearing, you know, I guess I feel less confident about just, like, sitting across from people, and if I have to introduce myself, I just say, oh, I'm a student, oh, what do you do for work? Oh, I don't work. Um, that feels a little weird, and so, yeah, I guess I have this kind of insecurity about all the free time I'm sort of facing now, and... Um, just kind of looking to fill it with things. And of course, some of that is going to be, you know, language study and some work, work stuff. But, you know, I'm also trying to find creative things that I might enjoy. But again, that feels like a something I have to, like, justify to other people. Or not that anyone's asking me about it, but, you know, for myself. You know, even though no one's ever asking about it, You know, I sort of live my life as if parts of my life are public facing or open to scrutiny that nobody really gives a shit about. But uh, it affects how I feel and, um, you know, I mean, I was talking to my brother recently and I was thinking like, yeah, like maybe a worthwhile goal is like to just have a normal sleep schedule or like someone says like hey what are you going to do with your free time it's like i don't know maybe i'll go to bed at 10 p.m. every night instead of 2 in the morning or 3 in the morning you know maybe i'll exercise more um you know and i'll you know my my first impulse is to say well that'll give me more time to do language study or something like that but maybe it should just give me more time to do nothing like maybe i should just watch more movies or do some leisure reading you know, so much. I mean, I have to do it's just an exorbitant amount of reading for all my classes all the time. And I always have this distinct thing. It's like if I go into the semester and I'm in the middle of reading something for pleasure, I just know that it's not going to get finished for like another four or five months, you know? <clears throat> Excuse me. You know, right before I left or made, towards the end of the last semester of school before the summer, I was, you know, I've told myself I'm going to go through all the, quote, encyclopedic novels, and that's something we can talk about another time if we haven't already, but, you know, these so-called encyclopedic novels that exist, and the earliest one, if you ask me, is probably The Divine Comedy, Dante's The Divine Comedy, which I've read, um, but uh, wanting to reread it, right, so, you know, I read The Divine Comedy when I was in, like, seventh grade, and I understood it I mean I understood the narrative of what was taking place but of course I, I didn't understand all the allegorical underpinnings of it um, and <laughs> I mean in a way it's kind of funny like I look back on when, when I'm younger because I was kind of an eggheadish kind of kid who wanted to be really smart. so I mean I remember being in like second grade like reading Hamlet and actually in a weird way there, there I honestly felt like you know, there was a period where I felt like I really understood those plays more as a kid than I did as like an adolescent or a young adult. You know, I think back on reading Macbeth or Hamlet or any Shakespeare when I was much younger and feeling like it actually wasn't that difficult. And yet I also remember returning to a lot of that stuff in my late teens or early 20s and actually finding it really fucking difficult. You know, I remember one time in my mid 20s just reading through the tragedies again and actually being like Yo, this is fucking weird. Like I'm sitting here as an adult and I'm having trouble just parsing or making sense of some of these sentences and at least in my mind that wasn't the case when I was younger. You know, like is there a way like when you're younger, you know, you're because you're less cerebral, you're actually more receptive, more more able to make sense of things? Um but uh what was I talking about? <laughs> yes, this is a very flighty entry. Um, why was I talking about that? I was talking about being younger, reading Shakespeare, having it be clear, feeling insecure about my time, language study. Uh, oh Lord, who knows? How I should be spending my time you know, reading for pleasure, The Divine Comedy, okay, yeah, we're coming back to it. Um, Yeah, I think I was just saying I was rereading The Divine Comedy, and yes, when I was younger, I was kind of a pompous kid, and so I remember, actually, in seventh grade, I took Latin. Actually, I need to change my story. I read The Divine Comedy when I was in eighth grade, because I remember that I had two two years of Latin when I was in middle school, in seventh and eighth grade, and I don't remember a goddamn look of it, which is really, I actually, it's one of the I can't say the great regrets of my life there there's, but, but I, you know, it just, there's a, you know, uh, that uh, studying Latin exposed me to a lot of like mythology, which was very formative and very interesting for me. And especially in my late teens and maybe 2021, uh, when I returned to like a lot of that, a lot of those source texts like the Iliad and the Odyssey. And I remember reading like Bullfinch's mythology and I was also reading a lot of theology in general, around that time, um, I guess I felt I really regretted that I was just kind of fucking around in school around that time, and I didn't learn Latin because if I had, that would have been, you know, a window into a whole body of literature that, as an adult, I would really love to have have access to. But I was just kind of fucking around and being stupid. But the Divine Comedy has always kind of stood out for me as one of these things that I read as a kid, and I felt really proud about, and I would sort of try to talk to adults in my life about. And at the end of the day, I don't know what the hell they thought, but I, I sort of imagine, like there's something kind of cute and quaint about me being a seventh, be, being an eighth grader, really taking this seriously. Like, oh, I'm reading the Divine Comedy, and, and but of course, there's just things that I just can't possibly understand. You know, I actually remember this embarrassing moment when I was like, uh, maybe maybe this was actually in seventh grade, but like one of my, fa- I have all these chapters of my life where I've had these different favorite bands. None of them are good. Or actually, they're all good, but they're just kind of embarrassing. They're not like, you know, we all had like that one cute girl in middle school who like listened to Led Zeppelin and like, or uh, like, and that's cool. You know what I mean? Like, you're not going to be 40 years old and think about the time where Led Zeppelin was your favorite band and regret that. Like, that's going to be kind of cool, you know? Whereas like me, I just have all these chapters where I understand why it's meaningful. I understand what I liked about it, but it, it feels like it's a hard sell for other people. To think that it was cool, or to think that it was anything but embarrassing, and so for me it was like I mean I loved musical theater growing up, and uh, but like my first favorite band, well other than like I was I was just obsessed with Michael Jackson growing up. Bone Thugs and Harmony was like a huge uh, group for me. Um, Rent the musical was huge for me, but a major band for me was Dave Matthews Band in middle school. And for me, the window into Dave Matthews Band was their drummer, Carter Beaufort. I remember watching, you know, I was a drummer at the time. I was taking drum lessons, and my drum instructor had all these different videos, instructional videos, that he had purchased. And we could kind of take them home as we wanted and uh, just kind of watch them. And one of them was Carter Beaufort's Under the Table in Drumming, which is like this, it was this two VHS set. I would have to take out one video at a time. But it opens up with him just drumming along to the Dave Matthews Band song, Number 41. Which, if you can, you should click over to some streaming service and play that right now. But just from the opening of that video, I was just absolutely enamored with Carter Beaufort as a drummer. And so, that, so for, I think for like a year, Dave Matthews Band was like my favorite band. But I remember I was really taken with their cover of All Along the Watchtower at the end of their Live at Red Rock CD. And I remember that was one of the first musical moments. I mean, I've had, there were probably many in my life before that, but it still stands in my mind as one of those moments where I first heard that. And I was like, Oh, I didn't know songs could hit like this. You know, like for me, it was alluring on so many levels. Like it was just this great piece of musical theater. Actually. Wow. I'm making that connection myself right now, but it itself was a, was a piece of musical theater. You know, it, that structurally, musically, it told a story. You know, it was almost, and it was this, you know, I think they like closed every single fucking show that they did for like 25 years with this goddamn song. But the part that's funny and the reason this is related to the di- Divine Comedy, uh, since you're probably wondering where the fuck I'm going with this, is I remember talking about that song. You know, I, or I should say, I, when I first heard it, I thought it was a Dave Matthews band song. I had no idea that it was a cover or that it was a Bob Dylan song. And isn't it interesting that we came back to Bob Dylan, right? Funny how this stuff works out. But I remember talking with a teacher about the song, and I was like, "Oh yeah, this is my favorite Dave Matthews Band song." And she's like, "Actually, that's a Bob Dylan song." And I was like, "What?" And I just thought, you know, as an adult, you have all these windows into like I remember one time with well, first of all, let me finish this one thought, which is as an adult, you have all you you just have more insight than kids and you see them kind of coming up and figuring the world out and just kind of making connections and kind of whether it's literature or theater or music, they kind of have to get familiar with the repertoire as well, the same way that, that we did. Right. But it's just interesting whether it's pretentiousness or something is, you know, young people are, are, are cute because they think they know a lot more than they do. And so as an adult, part of the the Jedi perspective is being available and not scolding kids for that and just letting them kind of grow and letting them think that they got everything figured out when you know, you know, they're playing checkers and you're playing chess on some kind of level. But I remember like sitting across from my stepmother one time and I was like, oh yeah, do you know Albert Camus? And she's like, uh, Camus? And I was like, yeah. <laughs> or uh, what was another one? Oh, I remember like walking up to my music teacher one time. And I was trying to sort of impress them that I knew a bunch of different classical composers or whatever. And I was like, oh yeah, I also really like Richard Wagner. And she's like, Oh, you mean Wagner? And I was like, Yeah. Yeah, that's who I mean. Um and yeah, why is this related to the Divine Comedy? Oh, yeah, I remember just kind of talking with my eighth grade Latin teacher about the divine comedy, and uh I yeah, I there's nothing that stands out in my mind as much as yeah, it's just insane to think that I was like in eighth grade walking around with this book, The Divine Comedy, reading it like I really understood what the fuck was going on, when of course I had no idea what the fuck was going on. Um but yeah, why are we even talking about that? Oh, I guess I was just saying, man, I just feel full fucking schizophrenic on this episode. My, my mind is lighting up like a goddamn pinball machine. Holy bajolies. But yeah, before I went to Taiwan, I was reading the Divine Comedy, and I read The Inferno, and I read Purgatorio, and I read Three Quarters of Paradiso. And as I look at my left right now, I see this unfinished copy of Paradiso and uh I just yeah I guess what I'm telling myself is now that I have all this fucking free time on my hand maybe I should get back to that you know but I guess if you end it anywhere it's not you know ending in the middle of heaven's probably not a bad place to end up it would have been real shitty if I just stopped halfway through Inferno right and left us there that's not where you want to end up you got to at least get to purgatory which by the way Last night I watched this movie, this is spoiler alert, Um, but I watched this horror movie called The Lodge. Now, if you want to look that up or look into that and decide for yourself if that's a movie that you want to watch, then um, you should not listen to what I'm about to say. Okay, But, I'll just say the premise is, and it starts off kind of interesting, although it has its own... It's pretentiousness. It kind of wears this pretentiousness on its sleeve a little bit, or maybe maybe pretentious is the wrong word. It's just kind of tropey. Um, but what it is is, I, I was I was sort of thinking about this uh, today, which is, it was not good. You know, there was some nice things about it. Uh, the cinematography was pretty good, um, although it felt a little uninspired. Um, but. It was kind of one of these movies, which as soon as I finished watching it, I was just like, why, why didn't I like that movie? And the first thing I landed on was like, you know, with the advent or the, you know, technology is so rarely accessible, right? The tools to make movies are just more accessible now than they've ever been, right? And I think this was sort of following up on like, I was thinking about like chess or maybe even like poker is maybe even a better example. But like if you were a professional poker player, Excuse me like 20 years ago or you were starting to play poker 20 30 years ago the only way that you could learn to play poker is to like uh, sit down at a table and play poker and that's I guess when you compare it to younger people now who are learning how to play on the computer you know the difference is that you know younger people develop so much faster now because they can play exponentially more hands online. You know, so if you just think about like, uh, you know, they talk about 10,000 hours, Um, I don't know, you can't really expedite 10,000 hours per se, right? But you can spend those 10,000 hours very differently, right? So if we were just in a computerless world and you were developing your poker skills, 10,000 hours of poker at a table, you know, where the cards have to be dealt and people are kind of going to the tank or thinking, um, you know, you're just going to see a lot less hands, whereas somebody who's playing online... You know, someone who commits 10,000 hours of playing poker online, maybe they're playing 10 tables at a time, they're just going to see so many more hands, you know? And uh, I guess the idea I'm sort of going toward is like their skill develops Um, a lot faster. Um, Yeah, there's something about like with different creative things, whether it's music. For example, I'm going deep on this uh, uh, Pigments software, this uh, software synthesizer from Arturia called Pigments, right? the amount of resources that are available for me to get into that and just dive deep is just, you know, there just weren't things like that when the mini-mode came out. You just kind of had to buy it and figure it out. And at the end of the day, the truth is, the vast majority of what that system was capable of doing was probably just completely lost on you because it's just no one pointed you in that direction, right? Whereas now it's just, you know, YouTube is just a repository of tips and tricks for anything you'd ever want to accomplish. Um... Right, and again, where am I going with this? Oh, so I'm watching this movie, and I'm thinking, this is not very good, but I thought it kind of had like an air of like, it aspired, it, it was sort of like a half-baked a-tourism, you know? Like, there's this kind of move now, and I think this happens in just in general when, when there's like political struggles and things like that. The genre of horror kind of comes out in a way. You know, it's a way to sort of talk allegorically about like the horrors that we're facing. Like for example, uh, is it Jordan Peele? I think that's the guy, right? Uh, Get out. You know, there's a lot of topical kind of horror movies that came out that have come out in the last you know five six years or something like that. Get out to me is even though I don't think it's a, you know, I don't think it's a perfect movie. Um, I'm not even sure I enjoy it that much, but I still look at it and go, oh, that is like a very topical, very important film in the in the genre of horror, right? Like that could go down as kind of like this generation's Night of the Living Dead or something like that, a movie that everybody saw, everybody was talking about, and is going to have important things to say about this time period 20, 30 years from now, right? Um. But the point I'm trying to say is, like, uh, horror has been seen as, like, a genre where aspiring a-tourists can enter and make serious creative statements, right? And the best person who's done that, I think, uh, and I hope you agree, is Ari Aster, right? Ari Aster did Hereditary, did Midsommar. Uh, they had the movie with Joaquin Phoenix that has probably come out that I don't know anything about and haven't seen, but uh, we'll, we'll see. Um But there was something about this movie, The Lodge, which I was like, oh, this is like faux auteurism, you know? Like when you just read the script, and do we need to go into details? I don't know. It's basically about a husband uh, who separates from his wife, you know, it sort of opens with the mom, kind of with the kids, and she has custody of the kids or has them for the weekend, and you can tell something's kind of wrong with her, but she takes the kids over to the dad's house, he announces, hey, we need to finalize the divorce, I'm going to be marrying my girlfriend She's absolutely shattered and ends up going home and like shooting herself. And so basically the premise of the film is these kids have to go live with their dad and they have to get to know their dad's new girlfriend, who's this woman with kind of a troubled past herself. And, you know, to kind of force this bonding experience, the dad says, hey, why don't we all go up to our family cabin that we used to spend, you know, Christmas at all the time. And that will be a chance for us to get to know each other. And of course, some weird things start happening, and this young woman starts to believe that possibly the ghost of her boyfriend's uh, dead ex-wife is now haunting them and all that sort of stuff. Now, what this is, though, is like before, if this movie was made in the 90s, it would just be kind of a jump scare horror movie. But because we're kind of in this time period where there are so many aspiring filmmakers, and this is, I think I'm trying to gesture to my idea that like the tools to make films are so readily available more films are being made now than ever before. Um, um, You know, it's like it had this quality of like, the script is not great. You know, it's actually kind of tropey and cliche and also like, but it had this thing that I think a lot of films have now, which is like, it looks really good. It's incredibly well shot. Like on a technical level, it looks good and so I have no doubt in my mind that, like a, like, a, like, a lot of people who like film might watch this and talk about this as if this is a serious film, but I was like, what is this film really missing, you know, and uh, I don't know how to say it as much as, like, when you watch a movie like Hereditary, you know you're in the presence of art, you know? We've talked about getting hit with the spirit, right? When you watch Hereditary or Midsummer, whether or not you think those are great films, You're in the presence of art. You get hit with the spirit, you know? And there's just something about this movie that just feels, like, confused, you know? Like, it's all there. But, like, another horror example that I saw recently is Skinamarink, which is it starts out very good and actually has one of the scariest scenes I've seen in a horror movie in a long time. And it's not a jump scare. I mean, I remember when I was young and I, you know, people, I I feel like I was talking about this with somebody recently, too, but like what is the scariest movie you've ever seen? For me, it was Exorcist. I saw The Exorcist when I was like 11 and it legit fucked me up. I mean, I look back on that and I realize, you know, I know people throw the word traumatized around a lot, but I'm just saying, I, I think that movie legitimately traumatized me because I remember watching it and not only is it scary enough in its own right, but there were entire scenes where I was watching it and I could literally feel my brain, my consciousness being expanded because I didn't know that one, I could be that scared. So on like an emotional level, I'm feeling myself expanding, you know, and I feel I feel very disoriented and confused. But I'm also witnessing something. This is why I think about trauma. I'm witnessing something I didn't know could even possibly happen right so especially if you're a young person and you're having like a traumatic event and we don't need to go into the specifics of what those are i'm sure you can imagine but if you're witnessing something that's just so confounding because you didn't know that this you know i was in you know watching a rated r movie i'm thrust in this adult situation uh of content that i just didn't even know fucking existed so obviously it was very like disorienting but there were entire it wasn't just like jump scares and there are those in the exorcist there were entire scenes Five, 10-minute sequences where I just felt myself absolutely on the needle of my, you know, my psychological needle is peaking, and I'm just, like, freaking the fuck out, and I just don't even know what to do with myself, you know? And I was, like, a young kid watching it with, I think my brother was there, I think our friend, we were, like, having a sleepover at a friend's house, so I can't be the one who, like, turns it off. I just remember just being absolutely transfixed watching those some of those scenes, you know, and just being just absolutely fucking shook but anyway this movie Skinamarink has a sequence that you know it's never going to be the same because i am an adult now right and i'm able to know on some level that this is a movie but it like uh, it's one of the scariest scenes i've seen in a long time and yet the movie itself this movie Skinamarink, is not good you know it's it, again it's one of these sort of aspiring a films that kind of like has you know uh it's, it's like, I don't know, I, I don't know what it's trying to be as much as it's like, it's like the eraser head meets uh, Blair Witch or something like that, you know, and it's like the concept is good, but there's no execution, you know, the filmmaker just kind of bit off way more than they can chew, it's just, this is not a feature film, this is a short, you know, I see this, I don't know why I'm jumping to this, but I see this in comedy specials recently, I saw, I don't want to say who it was, but I saw this comedy special on Netflix and I was like... I think this person has a special because of their identity, because I'm watching this and I'm thinking, this is not a professional comedian. This is somebody who I feel like they kind of got picked out because of their identity and Netflix wanted to give someone a special, and this person's not ready. Like, it's just not, they're not fully formed, and you can feel that. And, uh, yeah, I see that with art a lot. And there was another movie that jumped to mind that I thought was a perfect example of this. Um I actually find this person very interesting, and I feel silly that I can't remember their name right now. I think it's like Alex Gartland or something like that, but I did have this experience where um, I was probably just looking for something to watch late at night, and I've had a couple of these, and they're, I think they were kind of back-to-back. They were like horror movies. One of them is with Jake Gyllenhaal, and I think it's called Life. Yes. And it's this kind of like uh, trapped in a spaceship kind of premise of a movie, and it's not that different, and I, I don't think it's a, I, I don't know if it's great, but it's like that movie watching experience, I was absolutely transfixed, and I was all in, and I thought, this is a great fucking movie, and it has an ending where you're like, holy fucking shit, and uh, like to me, I don't think a lot of people saw that, but that to me was like a great movie. Anyway, why am I going into that? Oh, I think I had a similar experience with this other film. It's called Annihilation. And I didn't know anything about it, and I just put it on. And I was like, I had a kind of experience. and I was, But I was like, this feels again like this kind of one step removed. Like here's someone who's, I, I sense that they're kind of aspiring to a tourism, but they're just kind of falling short somewhere. And I, I'm confident this filmmaker has another film that if I could conjure it it would sort of scaffold my point here but I really felt like I was proven correct about this filmmaker when I saw their I think it's their most recent film called Men which was an A24 film which is like where all the important films are kind of coming out on now right but when I saw the movie Men it started and the first like 20-30 minutes I was like hit with the fucking spirit where I was like oh this is a real filmmaker like this is really interesting, really subtle. Really, 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 really good. The the the, the film is really trusting you to kinda of connect the dots and he's not hitting you over over the head with the horror. And there were so many cool things like visually and subtly, um, you know, that were just actually very subtle and I think one could have easily missed. Like, for example, you know, I don't remember the plot as much as, you know, I think it's about a girl who like goes away on like a creative retreat and she goes to this small town in the middle of England or somewhere. But once she gets there, a lot of weird things start happening. But one thing that's not very obvious is that all the male actors, when she arrives there, all the male characters are played by the same actor or something like that, right? But that was not something that you're getting hit over the head with. But then there's a moment where the movie kind of fucking turns and it starts going down the rabbit hole and it does what all super shitty blowhardy, uh, you know, sort of, you know, just bullshit art movies do, which is they just go completely nonsensical, right? Like, what's that movie that was on Netflix? Uh, um, I think it's called I'm Thinking of Ending Things, which actually, ironically, has the same female lead (laughs) as men, now that I'm thinking about it. But that movie, like, starts off very interesting, and then it just goes full- fucking nonsense. And it's just a hateful viewing experience because you have no idea what the fuck is going on. You don't sense that the filmmaker knows what the fuck is going on. And men turned in the exact same thing. And I was just like, don't people, how how do filmmakers not know that this is like a hateful viewing experience? You know? And some people like lose their shit over that. I mean, I guess like the closest analogy would be like David Lynch, which is like, yeah, I mean, I've actually heard there's a a movie he did called Inland Empire and Laura Dern is like the actress in that film. And she would say like, no one knew what the fuck was going on. Like every day they would show up for the shoot and he would just like hand them their pages and nobody knew the plot of the movie, where they were at because they're shooting out of, you know, chronological order, no one knows what the fuck is going on. And even like David Lynch really didn't know what the fuck was going on. He just trusted that he was going to find the film in the editing room, right? His movies are just kind of, they have a kind of dream logic to them. But the difference is that when you're watching a David Lynch movie, even though it doesn't make any fucking sense to you, and even if it doesn't make any goddamn sense to David Lynch, you know in your heart, in your gut, that what you're watching is a piece of art and that It's kind of like a Bjork album, which is like, I feel like Bjork kind of lost the plot for me. Like, Vespertine, I think, was like maybe the height of their creative um, output. And then they did, I think, Medulla, I think, was the verbal, all, all vocal record. That, they kind of started to teeter for me. And then everything kind of after that, I just have no interest in. But I've never doubted for a second that Bjork is doing exactly what Bjork wants to do. And I've never doubted for a second that David Lynch is doing exactly what David Lynch wants to do. I guess what I'm trying to say is the point is, you know, the the benchmark for success is not whether or not it makes sense. You know, like speaking of Bjork, you know, she was married to Matthew Barney for a really long time. And Matthew Barney is a visual artist who's used film as a medium for a very long time. And if you sit down and watch the Matthew Barney films. Uh, the Kree Master Cycle. And you're expecting films. Like narrative films. You're going to be sorely disappointed. But if you just accept them as like visual art. Which is like what they are. Then I'm not saying you're going to enjoy them. Because honestly they're boring as hell. But you might have a better appreciation for them. But when I'm in the presence of like narrative filmmakers. Who lose the fucking plot. You know, it's just it's just it feels clear to me that this person is not creating from a place of inspiration. It's like they're just trying to be weird for the sake of being weird. You know? The Lodge had some of that. Annihilation had some of that as well. And you know, and in fact, as I'm thinking about it, there's two things. The two things that save shitty films, you know, the two things that can kind of keep a shitty movie afloat from a really pretentious, like kind of creatively bankrupt pseudo-autorist filmmaker is cinematography and the score. Like I I really love Christopher Nolan, but like Tenet to me is like a perfect example of a film that although it's brilliant and I think it genuinely is brilliant and I'm sure it all works, it is a hateful viewing experience because it is it is fatally fucking flawed in that it is too complex. I'm not saying that the mechanic of the film is too complex, but I'm saying Christopher Nolan made a fundamental mistake of making what transpired inside this mechanic too complex. One too many times through the fucking time machine or whatever it is. Like, Inception was very smart, although it kind of holds up less as a film because of this. But Inception... The uh, Elliot Page character is completely there as an audience member. Every single point of the film is explained to Elliot Page so that we, the audience, understand. And of course, on repeated viewings, you, you know, the film might be less enjoyable because so much of it is exposition. But Christopher Nolan understands that what's, what's about to happen is very complicated. You're about to see a kind of a dream within a dream kind of sequence. But if you're going to sit with me for the rest of this movie, I need to make sure you understand exactly what the fuck is going on. Right? And Interstellar kind of made this mistake of kind of leaning too much into the science. There was actually not enough of a film there. And so it kind of leaned into the ideas. And those weren't really enough to kind of hold up the plot. Even though, look, if you watch Interstellar, again, it's not a perfect film. But you also realize that you're in the presence of like a real, a tourist filmmaker, right? Tenet is the same thing. I watch it, and I go, fuck, this is like a brilliant movie, and this is going to be very formative and very inspirational, and it's the type of movie that you're just going to think about and think about and think about and think about and think about, and And it's a brilliant concept, but the problem is there's literally a moment even in the exposition where the woman who's supposed to be explaining things says, ah, don't think about it too hard, (laughs) and the sad part is because I bet Tenet, out of all of his movies, makes the most sense, believe it or not. I bet if you actually sat down and graphed everything out, Tenet would not only be the most complex, but I bet it all fucking works, right? But the point is is that we don't know what the fuck's going on. But the thing that really saves Tenet a lot is it's fucking beautiful visually and the score is actually pretty fucking great too. Now, I know that our time is about to wrap up here and I don't know where the fuck I'm going with all this and I feel kind of weird that I'm ending on talking about a film that was not very good. Um... But yeah, where do I fit into all this? Maybe this is a good way to kind of wrap things up. Because sometimes I just sort of talk about things and I'm like, who gives a fuck? Like, what does that mean for me? Because it's really easy to just kind of sit here with my arms folded and think, oh, "Well, that's a shitty movie. What the fuck have I done? You know what I'm saying? Uh, play armchair quarterback and kind of say, you know, who am I to say what is or is not real art? Um, but uh, yeah, then again, Maybe that's just me speaking from a place of fear. Maybe I have every right to determine, right? I've spent my whole life watching movies, you know? I should know a good movie when I see one. In fact, if I don't know that, what the fuck do I know, you know? Anyway. (sighs) Anyway, this was a very uh, schizophrenic, scatterbrained episode. Uh, Again, I'm not really sure where we went or where we were going. But I'm committed to the process. I'm glad I put another one in the can and uh, I really appreciate you continuing to tune in and checking in with us and uh, you know, again these are like messages in a bottle I don't know where they go or who hears them but I trust that they're finding the people that they're meant for so um, yeah we'll put a bow on things today and uh, I'll look forward to connecting again next week until then thank you for your time thank you for listening and ciao for now